Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. We've had a number of guests on the program who, through their role as law school professors, are helping law students find and forge alternative paths. Today's guest, Monty Smathers, is one of the first people to take advantage of the new paths being forged. Of course, we'll talk about how the lure of free pizza started her down the path to being a T-shaped lawyer. But the important point was that Amani, when she was still a student, introduced the industry to the concept of the T-shaped lawyer, an idea that has stuck and changed the discourse around lawyer professional skills development. Today, Amani is a senior practice innovations analyst on the Chapman Cutler Practice Innovations team, where she focuses on process improvement, workflow management, and turning data into actionable insights. And if that's not enough on her plate, Amani is also paying it forward as an adjunct professor at the Center for Law, Technology, and Innovation at Michigan State. She's doing some incredible award-winning work, and I'm also proud to say she's a Seifarth alum. Listen in as we talk not just about how free pizza changed the trajectory of her career, but how the concept of the T-shaped lawyer has evolved since 2014 and why technology and process design are so important for access to justice. Hi, Amani. How are you today? I'm great, Steve. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. I look forward to the conversation. Thanks for having me. So let's start by talking a little bit about your journey. You've been practicing for eight years, which to me is a remarkably short time, and yet you've accomplished (laughs) an enormous amount between T-shaped lawyers and helping in the A to J work you're doing and contributing to a number of law firms and being an adjunct professor. I get tired just thinking about all the things that you've accomplished, but it sort of started with you being lured into a meeting with pizza, if I recall. (laughs) Yeah. When you were at MSU, you went to MSU to be an IP lawyer and free pizza turned your career around. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I went to law school at Michigan State University College of Law. I did go there thinking I might specialize in intellectual property. I'd taken a copyright and trademark class in high school. And so that kind of led me to think I would go that route. And then when I was at MSU, I happened to be incredibly lucky and overlapped with two young associate professors, Professor Daniel Martin Katz and Professor Renee Knocky Jefferson. And they had put some posters up for a London study abroad program. And I thought, that sounds cool. I could find out about London study abroad program, get some free pizza, um, you know, nothing to lose. I probably can't afford to go to London in the summer, but I'll just go listen to what they have to say and get some free lunch. And what I had no idea I was in for was a lesson on the Legal Services Act in the UK that was parts of it were taking effect in that year, 2012, was the first alternative business structures were licensed in the UK. And I got this lesson about the re-regulation of the UK legal services market that was happening and learning about that. And I just remember sitting there and thinking about the changes that were happening in the UK legal service market, you know, eating free pizza and thinking, wow, if that's happening now in the UK, something like that's going to happen in the US during my legal career, during the next few decades. So I want to know about this. I want to know what could be coming. So I ended up taking a couple weeks off of my law firm summer job that year 
and going to London with Professor Katz and Professor Kanaki. And it was you know, my introduction to legal innovation and legal services, delivery and data and technology ideas that were happening in the UK, but also starting to happen in the US. We met James Peters from LegalZoom. We had a class with John Flood at the University of Westminster. And there was a conference at the end that the professors had helped organize as well. And so we got just a crash course on legal innovation and, and the re-regulation that was happening and all the innovation that was coming out of it. And I got hooked. So I was in the first class of the reInvent Law program at Michigan State. So the four pillars of reInvent Law were law, technology, design, and delivery. And I think those are still pillars of my career that has come out of that. As you said, it, it did kind of start with some free pizza. <laughs> How did it reshape your law school curriculum? Because I know this was, as you said, at the beginning of the reInvent Law, which has evolved to be the Center for Law, Technology, and Innovation, which I know you're an adjunct professor, and we'll we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. But there's sort of a typical path law students go on, which I presume most MSU students follow. There's like every law student, you take contracts and you take UCC or you take constitutional law. But this reInvent Law program clearly affected your career. How did it affect your law school curriculum? Yeah, they were starting to offer some classes that had never been offered before. So I took Professor Katz's quantitative analysis for lawyers class. And I studied economics in college. So I thought, you know, I'll just kind of continue my quantitative analysis and see how lawyers can use those skills. And then also took e-discovery. And then I audited some classes after law school. I audited a virtual law practice class. I also took a practice management class across the street at the business school. I TA'd the first entrepreneurial lawyering class that was offered. And now I am teaching it at MSU this year. And there was one other one, the professional responsibility class that all students are required to take preparation for the MPRE exam. Professor Kanaki had gotten permission to do a kind of updated version, I guess. And it was professional responsibility, but also with a focus on ethics for lawyers in the 21st century. So it also talked about kind of the re-regulation that was happening and the new companies and law service companies that were, you know, entering the market and kind of testing the waters and testing the limits of, you know, UPL and how could they better, you know, provide access to justice and services that are law related in our current regulatory environment. So Professor Kanaki still focuses on kind of lawyer ethics and topics around that area. And so it was, you know, a very modern take on the professional responsibilities class. So you take this sort of sampling of classes and you're now coming up into your third year of law school and they're going to set you loose into the wild. And how do you sort of begin to think about what you want your career to look like? Because you, you went down a different path that's perhaps more common now, but certainly wasn't common when you started it seven or eight years ago. How did you go about sort of thinking about what you wanted to do and how you want to do it? Yeah. Well, one of the other things that was happening in the market around that time was that it was kind of just after the recession, the legal jobs market wasn't fantastic. And when I was in law school, there were actually a couple of articles published in the New York Times and other media about how poor the ROI was for going to law school. 
and what massive debt people were taking on and maybe not able to see the return for a very long time. So in the midst of that, the reInvent Law program that the professor started, partially their goal, their stated goal was to help the students find a meaningful and rewarding career in the law and recognizing that that might not follow a traditional path, but that could be okay if it still results in a meaningful and rewarding career. So there was this sense that maybe the traditional path isn't the best path for everyone. And there was kind of a stated acknowledgement by them of that at the time. And there was also this idea that there's a lot of opportunity and new niches becoming jobs. Um, And I forget the exact number, but there was also an article in the New York Times at the time that said 20% or 30% or whatever it was of jobs of the future don't even exist now. And so then it's a question of how do you educate the students for jobs that don't even exist? There is no path to follow to get to those jobs. So in reInvent Law, there was also this idea of, you know, how do we educate lifelong learners and how do we kind of be accepting of this uncertainty where there's also opportunity? So that was something that I listened to when I was there was that idea that, you know, there could be meaningful and rewarding paths that are not even paths yet. I think I've talked to Professor Bill Henderson and talked about it as if it's not a path. It might be like slightly stepped on grass in a field and you can maybe follow (laughs) if you have an idea of where you're going. That's a good analogy. But yeah, it was definitely a theme of especially the earlier parts of my career, including some of my early interviews of just acknowledging we have no idea where we're going in two years. But if you want to come along and, and help us figure out where we're going in those two years, you know, as long as you're okay with uncertainty, it could be exciting. A lot of lawyers are not okay with uncertainty. But you clearly are. And it's served you well, I think. Yeah, uh, you definitely have to be a person who's open to finding and following those opportunities. Certainly, I think a lot of people do go into law school to follow that hoped for path, you know, associate to partner. And I wanted to see what else I could find. Yeah, fair enough. So you're just out of law school and you do a presentation at reInvent Law where you present the idea of the T-shaped lawyers, which has become one of the most used analytical structures to think about skill development and training and developing of lawyers, which is sort of remarkable timing for someone just out of law school. Talk to us a little bit about the origins of the idea and how it came to you and sort of how at that stage of your career, you began to focus on this concept. Yeah. So the Reinvent Law Conference in 2014, I helped organize that, put on by myself and Professor Katz and Kanaki. And one of the wonderful things that they did was give some students opportunities to speak at conferences. We had around 800 people at that conference. We'd had a conference in Silicon Valley, in London. And at each one that we held, there were slots saved for students. And as a young grad, I was helping organize that. And so I also got a slot to speak at this conference, which was, I think, one of the first that helped create the legal technology and legal innovation community. And I've heard that from others as well. And so it was this amazing place and opportunity to be able to kind of be on the stage. And the topic that I presented at that conference was the T-shaped lawyer. And that was an idea that I brought really from other industries and applied to the legal field. So I, being at MSU, was around a lot of other educators and innovators, and I had gone to 
a innovation conference at MSU that wasn't law related, right? It was just kind of exhibit of some of the innovation that was happening around this large uh, research university. And one of the presentations was by some folks from IBM who have a relationship with MSU where they work with MSU to create an education pipeline and educate graduates who then have the skills that IBM is looking for. And they talked about this concept of the T-shaped professional and this concept that they look for and try to develop professionals that have both a deep expertise in their area of course study, but also a breadth of knowledge about other disciplines. So not necessarily experts in every discipline, but that they have awareness and value and understanding of the value of various disciplines. And that then becomes a T. So you have that vertical, deep expertise in your area, but then you also have that bar, top of the T, that is a shallower but broad understanding of other disciplines that you can then bring in to help problem solve when you're working on any problem that may or may not be related to your discipline. And some of the benefits that they talked about, right, were that these people that have that shape of skills, both broad and deep, are better problem solvers, they're better team collaborators, and they are lifelong learners. (laughs) So that was another benefit. And so they talked about that and it just, it fits so well with kind of how I was thinking about the legal market and the lawyers of the 21st century and how they could be better educated to be ready to be better problem solvers for their clients. You know, there's a critique of lawyers along the lines of, If the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem is a nail. If you have deep legal expertise, then every problem you're presented looks like a legal problem, right? It looks like a nail. But if you have that kind of T-shaped skill set where you understand other disciplines, maybe it's data, maybe it's process improvement, maybe it's technology, then when you're presented with a problem, maybe a legal problem from your clients, you can more easily see it as, okay, yes, there's a legal problem here, but there might also be a people problem or a process problem, right? Maybe there's a legal problem we need to solve today, but maybe with some process improvement at the clients, you could solve it for tomorrow too. So that's some of the benefits that a T-shaper might be able to bring by just having, you know, an understanding and value of other disciplines, not necessarily expertise, right? That's one of the reasons I love the T-shaped model. So it's not saying you have to be a business person and credentialed in practice management and process improvement and data analytics and, you know, AI all in one. It's that if you understand those disciplines have value and where they can add value, you know when to bring them in for a more holistic solution. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the growth of this theory, this approach, and and how you've seen it sort of morph over the years. But before we go there, talk a little bit more about the, you, you mentioned the collaboration, the, the ability to be a team lawyer, because I think one of the dynamics we've seen in the profession over the last 10 or 15 years is the impact allied professionals have in contributing to solutions for client programs. I'm sure you see that in your work at Chapman now, uh, and I've seen it in your your prior firms as well. What's the role of, I think it's self-evident, but maybe flesh out a little bit, the role of the bar going across in terms of the ability to work collaboratively with other disciplines and other people who are non-lawyers, I'm putting that in air quotes, because I think that's a barrier most lawyers have. Yeah, it is that concept that when you have 
the knowledge and value of those other disciplines, you know when to bring them in. So I've worked at three law firms now in their kind of practice innovations group at Cyfarth and Cyfarth Lean Consulting at Davis Wright Tremaine and the DeNovo Group and now at Chapman and Cutler in our practice innovations team. And in all of those, a lot of times the lawyer has to know <laughs> to bring us in or maybe sometimes it comes directly from a client request. But we've seen a lot of you know relationship development happen with a client when our practice innovations team is able to come in and maybe we're bringing project managers, maybe we're bringing kind of my role, which is a solutions architect, which can bring in technology solutions and process improvement. And in the background, we also have, you know, developers, data analytics, and we can provide some really interesting solutions that are more holistic, that do provide kind of that people process technology trifecta that when you have a lot of great lawyers alone, you don't have those full solutions. So we've seen, you know, relationship development. We've seen whole new business models created for law firms, whether it's an alternative staffing combined with process and technology, whole new ways of providing services to clients and sometimes new clients that the firm wouldn't have otherwise have access. So back on the T-shaped lawyer, so you give this presentation at a very cool conference in 2014. Did you think it was going to sort of sprout wings like it has and become such a prevalent way of thinking about skill sets and skill set development for lawyers? Because it's now ubiquitous in the industry, I think. Yeah, it's amazing to see it still talked about at conferences to this day. I love it. And a lot of times they even give me credit on the slide because I think I was the first one that kind of applied this T-shaped professional idea to T-shaped lawyers and suggested what some of the disciplines would be across that top bar of the T. But it, I had no idea at the time that it would stick. But actually, Noah Weisberg was at the same conference and he launched what became Kira at that conference. And afterwards, he actually sent me the book called Made to Stick about how ideas persist and which ones kind of make it and which ones stick. And he knew, <laughs> I think maybe from the book, he had an idea. He knew that this concept was likely to stick. I think just the mnemonic of the T or that it really did resonate with a lot of people about the skill sets and the way that we want to work with people going forward and some of the benefits. So he had a lot of forethought on that. And uh, I didn't know, but it's great to see it. He was right. He was right. <laughs> we still talk about it. And I think it still rings true, right? There are a lot of benefits to be gained from having that collaborative mindset and the ability to collaborate across disciplines that you do have some knowledge and value of, even if you're not yourself an expert in them. And there are other, cons you know, there's other shapes <laughs> that you hear yeah, about, there the are. delta shaped lawyer and the O-shaped lawyer. And both of those, I think, bring in this idea of more EQ, emotional intelligence and what we might call soft skills. And there's a critique that that's kind of not as focused on, on the shape of the T-shaped lawyer, even though I think some of its believed benefits are in that realm. But I think both of the Delta and the O-shape try and focus more on some of those emotional intelligence and soft skills, which is valid. So let's flash forward to today. One of your many roles is as an adjunct professor at MSU. How does the T-shaped lawyer or as you think about delta-shaped lawyers or O-shaped lawyers or the various shapes lawyers take, how does that inform your, your classes, your teaching? First, I guess, tell us what you're teaching. 
But then how do you present these concepts and these ideas in an educational format? Sure. So the two classes that I've been teaching this year are called Delivering Legal Services, the New Legal Landscape, and this fall teaching Entrepreneurial Lawyering. (laughs) And both of them, I would say, kind of focus on that top bar. So they're less on kind of doctrinal law and more on the business of law. And that does bring in a lot of disciplines that are not traditionally taught in law school. And with delivering legal services, we focus on a lot of process improvement and lean. So they read a book that's on lean. It's not a law school book, right? And we bring a lot of guest speakers and we talk about kind of the disciplines that you use when you are delivering legal services. So that can help improve the delivery of legal services. And then in entrepreneurial lawyering, I love it because it's a class not about how to be a lawyer to entrepreneurs, which, you know, you can find at a lot of law schools, small business law and entrepreneurship law. This is actually as a lawyer, teaching a lawyer to be an entrepreneur. And that can be either as, you know, a solo or small firm partner, as a partner in a larger law firm, you know, running their book of business and maybe practice group, or as an entrepreneur in the legal services space and legal technology space. So we talk about the business model canvas and lean startup and concepts around entrepreneurship. And I was actually talking to Justin Wilcox, who runs the Teaching Entrepreneurship site, and he was saying how great that you're teaching lawyers to actually think like entrepreneurs, because I've never had a lawyer who thought that way, right? <laughs> like his concept of lawyers was like the no people, right? And he was thinking if there were lawyers who thought like entrepreneurs or at least had walked in their shoes they could deliver a lot better service to entrepreneurs. So from both sides, I think it's beneficial to teach them not just to think like lawyers, but also have that maybe slightly more risk tolerant view of an entrepreneur, but also learning that testing mindset test so that you fail small and smart and learn from it. So I think there's a lot of value in teaching these different methodologies to students who are also taking all their regular required law classes and bar classes, but um, just introducing them to some of those different disciplines so that they have them in their mind going forward. Have you noticed any uh, consistent characteristics of people who are interested in these courses? Are they people who've had prior startup jobs or engineering backgrounds, or do they come from all facets anymore of the legal student community? I think the great thing is that they tend to come from all facets. My class this semester, I have students who have been entrepreneurs, who've tried starting businesses in the past, also children of entrepreneurs. A lot of students whose parents are small business owners, and so they've kind of grown up in that environment. But then I also have students, right, who take the class because it fit their schedule. And there's reels. And, uh, you know, they thought it might be somewhat interesting. And I love to have them in class because I still get to teach them all the same things and um, hope that it leaves a mark. Yeah. So your other job is with Chapman and Color and you lead a group that's won a number of awards this year in your A to J space, particularly in your development of a couple of apps. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of that and sort of the contribution your team has been making in that space. 
Yeah, I joined Chairman and Cutler in late January 2020. So right before this pandemic. Welcome aboard. <laughs> that we all lived through. And one of the really fantastic things that came of that last year and with Chapman and Cutler were the pro bono projects that I got to work on through the firm and through my team. So we have a really fantastic pro bono counsel named Sarah Gadiri, and she'd been talking with our practice innovations partner, Eric Wood, for a few years, just, you know, around maybe trying to do projects together with Chapman Practice Innovations and the pro bono initiative and nothing had really come of it yet, hadn't really found the right project. But then in spring 2020, you know, there were clear needs from some of our pro bono partners. They were clear to Sarah, (laughs) maybe more than anyone else. And some of those were they could no longer hold the in-person pro bono clinics that Chapman had been part of with the legal aid organizations like they had in the past. And the first group that we worked with was Legal Aid Chicago. And Sarah had a relationship with them. We often were parts of their expungement clinics where our pro bono attorneys would go and meet with people in person and have talked through their needs and fill out the expungement petition forms or sealing petition forms and help them submit that. And then the Legal Aid Chicago would kind of follow through and represent the clients. But when everyone could no longer meet in person, it was unclear how to best, you know, hold these clinics going forward and how to help people when we couldn't meet. So that was one of the needs. The other need, just kind of in general, with expungement and with other areas where you have pro bono attorneys, is that our our attorneys were primarily financial services law firm. So our attorneys are not working on expungement and criminal records relief on a daily basis. And some of the court forms can be very confusing. Even when you're a lawyer about how to fill them out, there's some double negatives. There's some questions where you read them and you think you might answer them one way, but the people who use the forms on a daily basis and know the court know that most of the time you should answer them the other way unless it's a special situation. So, you know, you need some knowledge of the forms and the law and the courts and the pro bono attorneys don't have that. But it's very helpful to have the legions of pro bono attorneys to help the legal aid organization scale and serve more clients. So with those two challenges in mind, you know, the the difficulty that we could no longer meet in person for pro bono clinics, but also just the challenge of training and, you know, educating pro bono attorneys and and getting the right results from the forms that they fill out uh, because they want to help, but they don't know as much going in, right? We were able to work with them to create a document automation solution that would have a questionnaire that online questionnaire that the pro bono attorneys could use with the clients and fill out. And it has more, you know, plain language questions. It has guidance along the way. So there's just in time training for the pro bono attorneys. It's kind of much more clear how to fill things out and what results are the petition forms correctly filled out, correctly formatted. Very few mistakes, probably, if you fill out the questionnaire, right? So that document automation, the online questionnaire, helped them move the clinics online and to a remote format during the pandemic, but also helped make sure that the output was pretty much correct when it went to the staff attorney for review. So it, you know, improved the process of the staff attorney review so that they were able to kind of do that quicker and with easier training and again, moving online. And so that was kind of the first iteration of the program that we built for Legal Aid Chicago. And the really great thing also was that they came back 
later in the year. And so we've actually improved our processes now that we have this tool, including like combining some of their services and reorganizing a bit to streamline it. So at first it had been, you had to go to one place in person to do juvenile expungements and you had to go to another group to do adult petitions. But a lot of the times it's an adult who needs both right? They need to expunge a juvenile criminal record, but also adult. And so they kind of put those processes together so that the client could go through one attorney, one process and get both done. So they came back to us later in this year and said, can you add you know, juvenile? Because we've been able to streamline the process for the client and we want to add this in. So we got to do a second iteration that added that in. And that I loved because it was not only, you know, adding technology to a current process, but enabling them to streamline even further for the clients and build that in. So that was really exciting. And then we did another project in a very similar vein for the Center for Disability and Elder Law in Chicago, automating a package of estate planning forms and then guardianship forms so that they as well could kind of move to remote clinics, remote working between the pro bono attorneys and the clients. And they were wonderful projects and win, win, win for everyone, you know, for the legal aid organizations, the clients, and also in 2020 to be able to get to work on great pro bono projects was just absolutely wonderful. That's awesome. Congratulations. In any design, any development of programs like this, there's a design requirements gathering stage conversation. How did you go about doing that in a virtual environment? Because as I'm hearing the timing, this is at the beginning of the pandemic, you're starting virtual. Everybody's a little uncertain about how it's all going to work. How did you go about cracking that particular nut of a problem? Yeah. I mean, all of our meetings are on Zoom. I've actually been remote for the past six years, um, even before the pandemic. So I'm very used to working remotely and doing a lot of Zoom meetings. But for the requirements gathering, I would speak with the legal aid organization teams and then I would usually map things out. So, you know, I have a lot of experience from CIFARS and from other teams that I've worked on with process mapping. And so I would typically create kind of a process map or a map for that app and go back to them and kind of try and validate it. So I, I heard what you said. Here's what I think the app could look like, you know, in steps and process based on what you've said. Is this right? And kind of get validation with a visual process map. And I think that worked very well. It usually was something they didn't even expect, <laughs> you know, but it was I found that to be a very helpful way to get early feedback um, and make sure we were on the right path. And then early prototypes. I mean, document automation is an area of expertise of mine, and I can put something together pretty quickly. So it was also putting an early prototype in front of them and saying, you know, if we built something like this more fully, do you think this would work? And usually they're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. We're seeing this already. And yes, absolutely. Or, you know, if we tweaked it this way, that'd be fantastic. And, and they'd start getting ideas as well. So definitely just kind of some early mapping and early prototypes and then building and, and iterating. That's great. That's wonderful. Back on the teaching standpoint, how have you enjoyed teaching? Because this is a relatively new twist in your career, right? Last spring and this fall. How have you enjoyed doing that? Are you still virtual? We're in person this fall. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, vaccine mandate and masks, but we're in person. It is definitely additional work as an adjunct, prepping the classes, especially for the first time that I've taught them. It's a lot of, you know, curriculum development. But one of the great things about that, along the theme of lifelong learning, is that I am continuing to learn so much. And it's enjoyable for me to also kind of 
have a reason to continue learning and researching and kind of expands my areas of interest as well, because it's what will my students find interesting? What should I be teaching them? And just kind of reinvigorating my interest in some areas. So that's been great as well. And it's a good way to pay it forward from all of the benefits that I got out of the reInvent Law program. Well, that's great. Amani, we're we're out of time, but uh, it's been amazing listening to you talk about all the things you've accomplished in, as I said, from my perspective, a very short period of time and the things you're, you're going to accomplish in the long career you have ahead of you are going to be amazing. So congratulations and thanks for the time today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the conversation. Lots of fun. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.